short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Cold War episode 20. Hello, Raymond. Hello, Cam. How are you? I'm very good, Ray. Good. Um, oh, you said talk, speak quietly, not deeply. Yes. I got those confused. I apologize. <laughs> you can do both if you want, deeply and quietly. Okay. Um, this is a, a muted show uh, <laughs> because we're recording at 10.30 at night, my time. Uh, I right. think it's about 8.30 in the morning for you, Ray. Correct. And uh, this is because we're uh, bringing in Professor Campbell Craig, who is the uh, Professor of International Relations at Cardiff University in Cardiff, Wales. Gee, I hope uh, he's on the same time zone as London, which I paste <laughs> this around. I didn't think to check. We're about to find Cardiff's out. Cardiff's on a different time zone. Anyway, um, Professor Campbell Craig uh, has had, held senior fellowships at Yale University, the Norwegian Nobel Institute, the European University Institute, the Ad- Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Bristol. He's given lectures at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Chicago, Columbia, Cambridge, the Free University of Berlin, the London School of Economics, the University of Copenhagen. But tonight he's really going to be put to the test. You know, they're 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 fine. Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Those were warm ups. They're, warm ups. Yeah, they're they're fine. But now he's got to deal with us. So we'll pray for his soul. Yeah, we'll see if he's uh, how smart this guy really is. Cut, cut the mustard. He's uh, co-written a couple of books: "The Atomic Bomb and the Origins of the Cold War" with Sergei Rodchenko. And America's Cold War, The Politics of Insecurity with Frederick Lugval. Uh, Fred will also be a guest on the show in uh, a month or so. But uh, I read this book uh, a while back and was seriously impressed. Uh, out of all of the books that I've read to prepare for this show, this is the one that really struck me as having the same sort of uh, tone that Mm -hmm. uh, we try and take it's uh not your usual cold war historiography so uh, i invited him and fred on and they were both nice enough to say yes so uh with that why don't i try and uh dial him up see if i can make skype work properly hello professor craig cameron and ray from the cold war podcast how are you fine how are you Good, thanks. Now, I just realised that I based our timings on London, and I have no idea if Cardiff is in the same time zone as London, so I hope I got it right. It's all, all the UK is the same. Ah, so that's nice. good. You haven't yeah. Brexited and, and the fact, time I'm, zones I'm sitting, yet. I'm sitting in Didcot in, a, in, a, in the back of a pub right now. <laughs> I don't know where that is, but it sounds lovely. <laughs> it's, it's not lovely at all. Okay. Well, Sorry. I hope you've I hope you've had a, a, a couple of beers or single malts or something to get ready for this show. No, nothing yet. I'm just in transition. I'm from in the train, so I got jumped off the train, went across the street, found it, found a pub, and um, here I am. <laughs> we appreciate you taking time out to chat to us. Uh, so, right. f- uh, forgive my Welsh, but Sutmai is that close? Uh, you're talking to the wrong guy about the Welsh. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, well, that's yeah. good. You can probably hear my accent. It's, it's a bit more, bit more uh, Chicago than Cardiff. I was. Uh, I'm glad I was going to do the whole show in Welsh. So I'm glad I didn't go to that trouble. <laughs> well, yeah, that, I did. That would have gotten up the Yeah, I I have uh, watched a couple of videos of you online. I did note that the accent didn't exactly sound well. So let's start. Tell, we've already done an introduction for you, but tell us a little bit sure. about yourself. Where, where were you born? Was it Chicago? I was born in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, which is not far from Chicago, uh, which was sort of a big uh, left-wing sort of hippie town back when I was born. Um, and 
uh, I went to university uh, uh, near there in Minnesota and postgraduate work also in the Midwest in the U.S. Over the last 20 years or so, I've been all over the planet, including um, for five years in New Zealand. Well, that's I not want, far want... from here. Was there anyone no, 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 there I... when you were there? Because I think most of them live here now. <laughs> Yeah, except for the All Blacks, maybe. I won't. I won't talk about their recent <laughs> success against the Wallabies. But, but um, you, you yeah. could. I. I pay no attention to such things. I'm too busy reading books about the Cold War. I will say though that our our first guest on this show was the uh, current Secretary of State of Wisconsin. So, oh, really? Um, yeah, I could. Doug Lafollette. Yeah. Doug Lafollette. Doug. Yeah, my yeah. dad actually used to work for him. Is that right? There you go. It's a very small world. Yeah. He's a lo- lovely yeah, man. He's an old old friend of mine, Doug. Oh, okay. Um, and so, how does how does somebody end up as a professor professor of international relations? I I, I have to ask that. Well, um, it's one of the reasons why I ended up in in, in in politics department rather than history department is because of the increasing um, decline of uh, departments in, in the West who hire political or or international historians. That's that's to do with uh, with economic politics primarily. Uh, and so a lot of us who teach about foreign policy, international relations, uh, have migrated to politics departments over the last 15, 14 years. Okay. Well, that I was hoping you were going to say it was to pick up chicks, but uh, yeah. okay. That's, that's, a, that's a good enough answer. Well, I mean, that's, 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 that's the honest answer to every question, isn't it? It, it is. <laughs> that's a whole other topic we could get into. Yeah. So... Campbell, when we started this series, we tried to make the case that people should listen to it. And and I should start by saying that our audience probably don't have a background in uh, political history or any other kind of history. So we, you know, we're trying to uh, uh, school them, bring them up to speed. But we we tried yeah, to yeah. make we, we tried to make the argument that this is it's important to understand the Cold War, even though it seems like it was a long time ago. We grew up with it. Where you know yep. I grew up in the seventies and the eighties when there was this ever present threat that we could all die tomorrow, and then it seemed yep. to disappear in the late eighties or early nineties. But I I had this idea that understanding why it happened and how it played out might help us understand a lot about what's going on in international relations today. What are your thoughts? Well, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, it's certainly understanding how the Cold War began is to understand how, you know, international politics works. And um, there, there is an enormous debate uh, among historians as well as other scholars about why the Cold War began, and um, that debate continues. But I think we've reached the point now where there's an emerging understanding uh, that the initial kind of inclination of many historians, which was, which, which was to blame the U.S. or to blame the Soviet Union, for the outbreak of the Cold War is no longer really in a very effective way of explaining it. Um, and it's important to look at larger patterns and certainly larger political and economic patterns. Yeah. Personally, the way that I, I tend to argue, and, and especially in the book that I wrote with Fred Lobovall called America's Cold War, um, I, that the fundamental explanation for the origins of the Cold War come from this simple fact that the U.S. and the Soviet Union were the two largest countries um, Standing after World War II, but also, and more controversial, uh, that the U.S. Ent- exited the, the, the Second World War um, determined to create a liberal world order that it would, it would be in charge of. One can debate whether the liberal world order it wanted to create was about out of selfish interest or, or idealism, but in either event, um, it put the Soviet Union in the situation of either accepting that and being in a world order dominated by the United States or rejecting it which it did, leading to this this conflict in Europe and eventually around the world. Well, we'll get more into your thesis on how that played out, certainly from a U.S. and a Soviet perspective. Um, Ray, you had a couple of questions about some of the concepts that we should start off with, though. Sure. Ray? 
Sorry, can you hear me? Sorry. Yeah. I apologize. Can, okay. Hey, well, welcome back, Ray. And, well, <laughs> thank you. Professor Craig, thanks for being with us. Uh, I just wanted to get you to explain a couple ideas from your book. So going forward, uh, this will make a lot more sense for the people. Um, could you kind of um, flesh out for us your ideas of um, what you covered in the book, uh, free security, the politics of insecurity, and how those are connected to the United States during World War II? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, uh, the idea of free security is, is the idea that the U.S., unlike traditional great powers, particularly in Europe, didn't have to do much to keep itself secure um, because it had um, militarily weak neighbors to the north and south and oceans to the east and west. This creates a, a political culture um, in the U.S. throughout the 19th century and into the first half of the 20th century uh, that uh, is disdainful of power politics, typically disdainful of militarism. Um, and uh, it, it, it certainly facilitates a, a greater uh, a belief in idealistic possi- possibilities and, and international change. So the, the United States, at the, at the cusp of the Second World War, was a nation that didn't have to worry, as European nations did, about uh, attacks from, from across the borders, and that created a, a attitude towards international politics, which is very different uh, than than European or some Asian state. So the, the politics of insecurity that, that Fred and I um, elaborate upon in the book uh, has to do with the tradition of free security playing out in American politics after the Second World War um, and a uh, belief and understanding by many American politicians uh, that they could use the sudden change in, in the international situation uh, as a result of Harbor in the Second World War and the Soviet threat uh, to play up threats to the United States that um, hadn't that, that were exaggerated or sometimes entirely contrived. And the connection between the two, which is one of the I think unique the original points we make in the book, is that American politicians have become used to playing politics with questions of foreign policy and security policy because of the tradition of free security which gave the United States tremendous leeway um, in what it did around the world, and that this tradition continued on into the Cold War uh, in ways that, again, we, we think distinguish it from other great powers. Mm. So, so I'm just, just to follow up, so, um, so America is pretty much, the politicians are doing what they want. They're, they're relatively safe because of distance and oceans, and so they're more concerned with what's going on with the next election versus what's really going on in other parts of the world. Exactly, and this is there's you have so many many great examples, especially from the '40s and the '50s, uh, about uh, American politicians understanding that um, militarism and keeping threats was very good politics for their own electoral and fundraising purposes, um, and that they uh, had this intuitive understanding that they could do it because it wouldn't really matter if they got things a bit wrong um, because uh, of this long tradition of, of, of safety uh, that the United States had, had because of this geographical position. I, I just one last question, Cam. I'm sorry. I just have to follow that up. As an American today, totally frustrated with Congress, you just get the idea that that hasn't changed very much. Uh, it, it might have, uh, as it, maybe it's cha- our change into a different form. But you get the idea that yeah, everybody's just literally out for themselves. All they care about is the next election, staying in power, so they don't have to go out and deal with the real world. It's it's very depressing and sad. But you get the idea that we they still think along those terms today, which is very scary. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the politics of insecurity, I think, are even more intense after the Cold War than they were during the Cold War in a lot of ways because the stakes of getting things wrong have diminished even further now that will just become unipolar and that's the Soviet Union is gone. I mean, as, you, as we see in the election campaign today, politicians can say almost anything, uh, stuff that just doesn't make any sense at all, uh, and uh, get away with it in, in, in a way that would not work in other countries. They can say that the United States is under threat, that we're it's, it's most dangerous since the World War II, you know, just laughably absurd kind of, kind of claims. And it, it's possible in American politics because of this massive uh, leeway, the massive, massive flexibility that the United States uh, enjoys compared to other nations today. Mm. 
Well, let's let's talk about the early stages of the Cold War. I know that in academic circles, there's still, as you said earlier, a lot of debate about what the first acts of the Cold War were. In your opinion, what were they? Um, the first main moves in the Cold War, uh, I would say certainly the um, decision um, by the United States to assume control over global currencies at Bretton Woods in 1944, uh, where they essentially bribed the UK to transfer um, uh, the main currency of exchange in the world from the, from the pound to the, to the dollar. This was a time also where the Soviet Union was invited to join this um, arrangement and, and decline. Uh, another uh, important event, in my opinion, was um, the uh, failure of atomic control, and I've written a, another book about that um, with a colleague of mine named Sergei Redchenko uh, in 1945 and 1946, uh, which um, the United States uh, put forward at least ostensibly a plan to establish international control over the atomic bomb. Um, they did so in a way that basically forced the Soviet Union to reject it, uh, and which is a very clever uh, politics, actually. Uh, this uh, puts the end to any chance of a kind of serious international organization in control of weaponry, and in a very structural way, I think that paves the way for the Cold War. You have um, certainly the, the, the very famous events of February 1946, uh, Stalin's famous speech saying that the um, that the political struggle in, in communism is going to continue. George Kennan's long telegram, um, the uh, famous speech by Winston Churchill uh, on the Iron Curtain at the end of that month. All of these things uh, contribute to it. And then in '47, you have the establishment of the Marshall Plan, which, um, like the earlier American plan for atomic control, puts the Soviet Union in a situation of having to reject an offer and... Um, uh, be blamed for a, a division of Europe. And so you have, I think, between 1944 and 1947, uh, a series of moves mostly made by the United States, not necessarily aiming at a Cold War, but aiming at a uh, forcing the Soviet Union either to go along with a, a, an American-led order or to take the blame for a division. Mm -hmm. You also say in your book that Truman's refusal to delay the bombing of Nagasaki was yep. the first act of the Cold War. Can we, we, we've, we haven't got up to that in our series yet. We just did uh, a long episode on Bretton Woods, though, so I'm glad you started with that. Oh, sure. uh, can you uh, explain your view on the Nagasaki bombing? <laughs> I can at length. I, I, I have put forward a, a controversial argument along with Sergei Rachenko and my book on the atomic bomb um, that it, it is possible to explain the motivations of, of Truman in August of 1945 with respect to Hiroshima and Nagasaki differently. So uh, what I argue, what we argue, is that um, uh, the bombing of Hiroshima can be uh, easily explained in terms of the sort of traditional argument, which was meant to put an end to the war and to, and to avoid an invasion that would have happened later in 1945. The second bombing not so much the bombing itself, but the timing of it, the, the fact that the United States went ahead and did it in three days. Um, it's harder to explain with those kinds, that kind of reasoning. Uh, and it's, it, it lends credence to the argument that the Truman administration wanted other things uh, from Japan, uh, namely a very rapid surrender to prevent uh, the Soviet Union from moving to China or participating in the occupation of Japan later that year. So that's, that's a kind of a, a nuanced approach to understanding Hiroshima and Nagasaki to see the motivations for the bombings as being somewhat different. As, as I understood it from your book, part of your argument is that well, three days wasn't really enough time for the Japanese government to get their shit together and uh, come back with uh, some sort of offer of uh, surrender. So yeah. it, it, it really had nothing to do with that. No, I mean, the, the, the counter-argument that's often made is that, is that Truman delegated the, the decision-making process to the military, and they just dropped the bombs when, basically as soon as they could, um, and that, that therefore the, my argument is just reading too much into it. Uh, it's, it's very much of a counterfactual kind of argument, because there's no evidence that Truman said, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead and drop the second bomb on Nagasaki so we can contend with the Soviets. That's never happened, and there's no one who pretends that it did. The, the, the question I raise is, 
why did Truman delay it for a few days more, given the fact that he knew about the drama of the, the atomic bomb, given how momentous the decision it was, and given the fact that uh, the Japanese government obviously would need more than three days to make to digest what had happened at, at, at Hiroshima and to issue a, a, a surrender. Mm. So we're, we're talking about we're talking about conjecture and speculation. There's no proof on either side of this argument. Yeah. Right. Hey, uh, now that the uh, the bomb is dropped and the, the war is over, I, I wanted to get your um, sense on how the United States' position towards the threat or supposed threat of the Soviet Union changed, say, like the first four or five years after the war is over. Sure. I mean, I think that, I think that um, the United States didn't regard the Soviet Union as a serious military threat in, in the first few years after the Second World War at all. Um, they certainly regarded the Soviet Union as a political threat um, in terms of uh, the possibility of left-wing or communist governments um, uh, taking over in Western European countries. Mm-hmm. Um, they very much believe the United States that, and this is a big part of the Marshall Plan, that it was very important to um, maintain morale in Western Europe uh, after this devastating war, and that the Soviet Union was, was clearly poised take advantage of low morale in the West. That was taken very seriously by the United States. And, and we, as we argue in the book, the U.S. did a really good job, I think, in, in late 40s of in, in maintaining morale in Western Europe and avoiding a sort of creeping and probably mostly unmilitary Soviet expansion into Western Europe. The military threat really doesn't, doesn't emerge until the Soviets test an atomic bomb in, in 1949. And that's, I think, really when the United States first begin to actually think about um, a, a, a threat of violence from the Soviet Union rather than a threat of, of political expansion. Mm. But how much of that positioning of the Soviets as being a threat to America is being driven by the American domestic political situation that you mentioned earlier? Well, I mean, I think I mean, it, it's, that really begins to intensify a lot in the late 40s and, and, and early 50s. Precisely because of the atomic bomb, which was seen correctly in many ways as a consequence of, of espionage in the West. Uh, also, the um, victory of the communists in China, which happened almost exactly at the same time in late 1949. Uh, you, you see this increasing um, hysteria that, was, of course, culminates in McCarthyism in the early 1950s, uh, that is, is very much part of the political dynamic we've talked about. It's, it's, it's not. It's not overwhelming in American politics in the late 1940s. You, you see some of it. Uh, certainly, um, House on American Activities Committee, other, other organizations in the Congress and the Senate are beginning to play this politics of insecurity card. But it's not nearly as dominant as it would become later. Mm-hmm. As we, I think we point out in our book, it's really important to know that, that um, Henry Wallace ran a successful presidential campaign in 1948 that was basically... Uh, uh, almost pro-Soviet and um, calling to the end of the Cold War. That kind of political campaign could exist in 1948 quite easily. Four years later, it would have been an absolute impossibility. So Mm. the political culture really does change, you know, around 48, 49, 50. Because you have to be seen to be talking tough? Because the the Soviet bomb and and the, the fall of China to the communists make it increasingly difficult in American politics to be anything other than very, very anti-Soviet, anti-communist. Mm. Okay. If we could get meta here for a second, could you explain for our audience who George Keenan was and the role his memo played in starting this entire process going? Sorry, George Kennan. Yes. Kennan, sorry. I'm sorry. I said it, said it wrong. That's okay. That's all right. I mean, Kennan, Kennan features quite heavily in our in our book. He's sort of an eminal series. And Kennan, Kennan I think, uh, what Kennan did in, in 46, 47 particularly was um, uh, persuade people in Washington that um, a traditional kind of deal-making approach, traditional kind of diplomacy wasn't going to work with... Um, the USSR in a way that some American politicians thought it would. But the Soviet Union was much more sort of cynical and, and um, driven more by uh, anti-Western politics uh, than 
then some some American politicians like the same. Uh, so he was saying basically, you know, get over this idea. We could create a new world order. It's not going to happen. Soviet Union comes comes to you know work every morning and they and they play top power politics and this is the way that we've got to do it too. Uh, so it's it's easy to over overestimate how important um, Kennan was because he wrote so well and expressed things so interestingly and he became such an uh, interesting critic of the Cold War after the 1940s that it, it's, it's easy to sort of say, well, Kennan is this, you know, this, this grand architect of the Cold War, and that's not really true. But he did have some, some interesting things to say which were influential at that time. This is the idea of containment? The idea that, that, that that's the best way to contend with the Soviet approach to power politics was to establish containment in Europe, uh, to give the Soviets a very clear idea that they weren't going to be able to expand into the West by military power, and that would lead, Kennan predicted quite correctly, to um, a Soviet forcing the Soviet Union to focus on itself, a dysfunctional system, which is eventually what happened in the 1980s. Yeah. So, so what do you think the Soviets could have done differently to avoid the Cold War? The Soviets? I don't think the Soviets could have done almost anything to avoid the Cold War. Um, well, no. I mean, the Soviets could have joined Bretton Woods, and they could have accepted the Baruch Plan, and they could have accepted the Marshall Plan, which would have meant that the Soviet Union, as a, as a communist country, would have either disappeared immediately or, or soon afterwards. This is essentially the choice that the United States was, was presenting to the USSR. We, you know, we, we, there's a new world order. We're going to run it. Um, and uh, either you, you know, sign up to it or you don't. And if you don't, it's just going to establish a geopolitical competition. Um, you, know, Stalin, you know, Stalin was one of the worst people in history. Uh, he, he was an absolute uh, uh, sociopath. But he also had an attitude towards foreign policy. That was fairly realistic, and you know he had to decide quickly. You know what, what did this do with the United States? And the United States was saying it's a you know a world order that we want, and it was a world order that that, that would you know better than previous world orders, which was a very plausible argument at that time. And uh, either you're part of it, or, and if you're not part of it, then then we got issues. And that's how the kind of Soviet Union uh, looked at things in '44 and '45, and it's why it, um, desperately. Uh, saw the atomic bomb as quickly as it could in like forty. As a def- as a defensive measure, do you think? Yeah, basically, you knew that if it didn't have an atomic bomb, that it would never be able to contend with the United States, and that's why all the people who were spying for the Soviet Union during the war and afterwards uh, did it. They, they knew that the Soviet Union couldn't contend with the United States with only one side of an atomic bomb. Hmm. So they were trying to level the playing field so there might be a chance of peace or dialogue? I mean, that's, that's how they would have def- uh, defended it. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm in the back of a pub and you have occasional sort of action happening. Uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah, they would have, some of the some of the slides would have said, yeah, we have to, we have to if we don't do this, the Soviet Union is never going to survive and therefore socialism is going to die. And that's, that was the justification. If I could just do a follow-up question to the containment, and again, this is for my American audience, because I was taught in the 80s that, that, you know, the Soviet Union was trying to take over the world from the get-go. So right after the Cold War, so right after the Cold War, the memo is saying, we need to contain the Soviet Union. If you make it easy for them, if you have openings, sure, they would take it. Who wouldn't take it? But the point is, if we can contain them, then the issue is pretty much moot, but I just want to, if you could just cl- uh, clarify a little bit more as far as the Soviet um, goal after World War II was either to or to not uh, have world domination, forgetting propaganda for a second, do you th- really think they were trying to to take everything? I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, who, who wouldn't take world domination if it's you know, offered to you? I mean, in, in one respect, uh, the Soviet Union was in no position militarily at all to try to dominate the world. Uh, in, in the late 1940s or any time during the Cold War. Um, and uh, that's, you know, the, the intelligent people in charge of American foreign policy after the war, like Kennan and Dean Acheson and George Marshall and others, knew, knew that perfectly well. What they, what they wanted to do is contain the Soviet Union in the sense of giving it um, the clear message that 
whatever is going to happen over, over the next decade, you're never going to be able to uh, to move into Western Europe. It's just not going to be happening. That's one thing you can just be sure won't happen. All Japan, and you have to figure out what, what you know what what your role in the world is going to be like without that. Um, and you know, I, Fred and I in the book say this is a smart policy, and, and, it, and it worked. Um, it took a long time to, to play out for reasons that we discuss at length in the rest of the book. But um, but it, it, it was a good policy, I think. And, and certainly, people like Kennan, particularly, didn't want it to be an overly militarized policy. They wanted it to be primarily political. Right. Just a quick follow-up question. So again, again, being an American and the way I was um, told of the events and the way Cold War was interpreted, uh, it was. It seemed to me that the USSR was always much stronger than we were, and we were just doing everything we possibly could just to hold them back. They were the bad guys. They were the aggressors, and we were the noble um, underdogs, if you will. And you just for, from you know from their position after World War II, like you said, they were in no position to militarily challenge us. I mean, did that ever change? Were we always stronger? Was the U.S. always stronger than, than them in military military terms? Yeah, I mean, the, the history of American politics in the Cold War is a history of wildly exaggerating Soviet power. Um, and this kind of fear-mongering that the Soviet Union is on the verge of superiority, all, all these other things. I mean, that that's, you know, a main theme in, in the book that Fred and I have written. Obviously, once both sides get through nuclear weapons and missiles, then, yeah, the Soviet Union could, could destroy the United States anytime it wanted to. So, so the, the, the idea that there was a, a military threat from the Soviet Union after about 1960 or so was, in one respect, obviously true. Um, but the United States had dealt with that by building its own massive nuclear arsenal to deter the Soviet Union from doing that. Um, and that's, that's, that worked for the next 30 years. Um, right. So the idea that the Soviet Union was a sort of like this a juggernaut, a, super, a nation of superman, men who were going to conquer the world as soon as the United States um, let down its guard in any way was, was wrong. Um, Soviet Union did have nuclear missiles, so it, it did pose a military threat in one sense. But the American political system really, really um, incentivized people exaggerating the Soviet threat, as you saw especially in the late 1950s and again in the late 1970s. So, so given all that, is there anything the Americans could have done uh, to counter Cam's question uh, to avoid the Cold War, or we were we pretty much just filling a vacuum after World War II? I mean, I think, I think the United States could not have avoided some kind of, of competition with the Soviet Union as soon as it became clear that the Soviet Union was not interested in taking part in the, in the, in the American-led world order. So one of the one of the arguments Fred and I make in the book is that the Cold War could have been much less militarized. It could have probably come to an end much more quickly, and it certainly might not have led to such dangerous crises had the United States um, been been content by 1950 with the establishment of a containment policy and begun to pursue diplomatic uh, 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 negotiations with the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. I mean, there's not, you know, that's a what-if question. It's hard, hard to know for sure. But um, I don't think I don't, there was any way to avoid a geopolitical competition between the United States and the Soviet Union after, after World War II under almost any circumstances. The one way that, that could have been avoided was the idea that some people had in the U.S. and the U.K., which was to go on and, and uh, destroy the Soviet Union after beating Nazi Germany. But um, that was never going to happen given the mood of the American public and the British public. Right. One of the justifications I think people have in their minds today when they think back to this period is uh, Stalin's atrocities uh, across the Soviet Union that you mentioned earlier that we've talked about in great detail on the show. Yeah. But uh, I'm wondering... How much of those atrocities were the U.S. leaders aware of during the 1940s and early 1950s? By the early 1950s, there was a general knowledge among people who paid attention to this about the scope of the of the brutality of Stalin's policies in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and there was, there was already books being written on the topic, and no, no one who, who paid attention to this uh, had any or much doubt about... Um, the scope of, of the terror in the 1930s. 
some of the some of the figures as, in terms of the number of people who died of starvation as a result of collectivization didn't come out until later. Um, but the the general sort of nature of of, of of Stalinist terror in the 1920s and 30s was well known in, in American in sort of you know intellectual circles in American politics by the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, certainly during the Second World War, it was much less known and obviously played down for obvious reasons because the Soviet Union was an ally. Um, that, that changed uh, by the late, late 40s, early 50s. So if, um, and, and you kind of touched this on this already, but it sounds pretty much like the, uh, the U.S. attitude and our actions based off that attitude is it wasn't so much we were outraged by the type of leader Stalin was, because we don't find out until later, but basically the Americans came up with a, an economic political plan and they said to the USSR, join us or don't, pretty much knowing they wouldn't. So again, America gets what it wants, but the USSR, Stalin, gets the blame for not playing along. I mean, it was just a brilliant maneuver, if you will, by by these American politicians after the war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of people in this part of the world think that you know, Americans are so stupid, and you know, in the, in the age of Donald Trump, that's an easy conclusion to make. But but um, <laughs> but in but in the 1940s, you had some very very clever policies being developed by the United States. Um, if you can if you can create you know a conflict on your own terms and make the make the other side take the blame for it, that's a very impressive move. And that happened, you know, with the group plan and again with the Marshall plan, uh, and in some ways also with, with Bretton Woods and, um, you know, really, really effective policymaking by the United States. Just, I'm sorry, just a quick follow-up question. And just to make it clear, because Cam and I pound this idea a lot in the show, it's not so much good versus bad or whatever. Everybody's out for their own survival, their own selfish interests, and that's, has nothing to do with good or bad. So when the United States pretty much takes over and they make the dollar, you know, the main currency, we're not being evil. We don't hate anybody. We're just taking advantage of an opportunity. And I would like to think that any other country would do the same thing. It's just what's done. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, looking back retrospectively, it, it's, it's very true that the United States didn't think of it in the sort of, um, you know, moral, moralistic terms, Completely in the 1940s and 50s, it, it, it did what it did for good political reasons. Now that doesn't mean that we can look back, knowing what the U.S. was like and what the Soviet Union was like, and be glad that the U.S. did it. I mean, I wouldn't want to live in, in a world under a Stalinist, Stalinist Soviet Union. I don't think anyone else would. And mm-hmm. um, the, 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 you know, the, the scope of brutality in that country was really almost beyond belief. Uh, so we can look back and say, well, yeah, the Soviet Union was was. A, bad regime, but that's not good history, but that's not how, how what was operating in the 1940s and 50s. You've mentioned that the U.S. wanted to set up this new world order. Is that an economic new world order? Well, yeah, it's political and economic. It's, it's, it's economic in the sense of, of free trade, liberalism, capitalism, um, you know, what we got now. And um, it's, it's political in terms of a domination of, of we might call sort of American-style liberalism, uh, which uh, many American leader, leaders believe um, could and would spread, not to the entire world, certainly, but to Europe and maybe parts of Asia. Um, and, you know, there are, there are plenty of people in the United States who, who believe this quite, quite sincerely. I, I guess where I'm going with this is I have the, sus- I have the suspicion that... Um, Part of the agenda of the American uh, elite, political and uh, financial elite in this period was to take advantage of the weakened European economic situation uh, to expand America's ability to trade with these countries, uh, to make sure that 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 ability to trade was going to survive uh, after this period, that it was about being able to sell American goods and services, even if they had to give the people the money to buy their goods and services sure. in the first place. Uh, to, yeah. to, it, it was driven a lot by the, their ability to make money. We, we've done many, many hours of episodes on the uh, economics of war profiteering and how the, the sort of state of the U.S. economy from the late 19th century up until their entry into World War II and how the war pulled them out of them and military Keynesianism and this kind of stuff. 
I'm just wondering yeah. on your take because you don't you, you touch on a little bit in the book, but don't go into it as in as much depth as um, I had expected about the underlying role of economics in driving the U.S.'s uh, political positions. Right. Well, I mean, I think the reason why we didn't go into it as much as, as you might have expected is because neither, neither Fred or I really adopt a kind of economic determinist argument. Um, right. we, 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 don't, we don't think that because the United States was a capitalist country that, therefore, the Cold War had to proceed as it did. We don't take a sort of Marxian or Marxist approach to our analysis. Uh, what, what we argue is that um, the United States wanted um, global capitalism and it wanted um, political liberalism. Um, mm-hmm. And that's obviously there were very, very powerful economic forces um, in the United States which wanted to see the expansion of, of, of capitalism for their own economic purpose. But that this was not the only thing that drove the American government. It certainly was something that um, uh, drove various American administrations to lesser or greater extent. You know, one mm-hmm. of the people I've written about a lot is Eisenhower, and Eisenhower, you know, fought these people all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, eventually, you know, talking about the military-industrial complex for this mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't adopt a kind of, uh, you know, uh, orthodox Marxist approach to expanding American foreign policy. And one of the, you know, one of the key innovations of, of, of our book is this idea of, of the politics of insecurity, uh, not fundamentally being driven by economics, but, but more by uh, the American foot political system, militarism leading to uh, electoral victory. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I, and of course, I, since you're on the show, I just have to ask this big, this question, uh, the big what if. If um, uh, FDR had lived through his fourth term, I wonder how that would have, you think it would have affected U.S.-Soviet relations or if his successor, Truman or whoever, um, pretty much stayed uh, on his uh, his idea because it seems like Truman was trying at first, but either himself or events around him caused him to go in a different direction. But if you can give us an idea of if, if, if a more balanced approach would have been kept up as far as trying to deal with the Soviet Union, how that might have changed things. I mean, I, I argue in the, in the book I wrote with Sergei Machenko that it probably wouldn't have been much different at all. I, mean, I don't think I don't think that's that's. Roosevelt would have done anything terribly different. Mm. He might have been, he might have made a different decision on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He certainly, right. I think, would have pursued maybe diplomacy a bit more with the USSR than than Truman did, especially late '45, early '46. Um, but I don't think that he, I don't think that anything would have been a radical difference. Okay, and you. Yeah. Ma- I just have to ask real quick. I'm sorry, Cam. Uh, you mentioned Henry Wallace one time, but yeah, I, you you made the point that by the time he's running for vice president, and his his idea is, look, they're humans too. They have their own agenda. Let's talk. Let's have a dialogue. Let's try to figure out a compromise here. But by then, that was not politically obtainable or want desired by certain U.S. politicians. By by forty eight, the Cold War is, is is in my view. Uh, Done. I mean, there's, you, have, you have this division of Germany, you have the occupation of all of Eastern Europe by Soviet political and, and military forces, you have the you know, imminent establishment of NATO. Uh, what, what Wallace was calling for, I think, in '48 was a, 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 a diminishment of militarism uh, and attempt to negotiate with the Soviet Union. I think, you know, if, he, if that, you have to try that in '45 and '46. Could have seen something substantially different than what he saw. I think by '48, it's too late. The interesting thing about Walter Wallace candidacy is not so much that what he was arguing for was possible, but that the, it, still, it still was able to happen in American politics, which I argue wouldn't have been the case a few years later. But if, if FDR hadn't dumped Wallace for Truman as his veep before he died, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Wallace had taken over the reins in uh, early 1945, you think it might have been different? Yeah, or not. Definitely. Oh, it right. would have been different. You know, the, the argument I've been making is that there was no way to prevent some kind of conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. But it definitely yeah. would have been different under Wallace. I don't, I don't know how, how long Wallace would have made it, but, uh, but yeah, mm. it certainly would have been different. So you, you mentioned before that containment had pretty much been achieved by about 1950. Can you explain yep. why that is? Well, what evidence is there that containment had been achieved? 
Well, I mean, the containment of the United States defined it that had been achieved in the sense that you had an effective alliance with Western Europe, you had um, effective alliance with Japan. Um, Kennan said that basically you keep the Soviet Union out of the main industrial parts of the world, Western Europe and East Asia, uh, or Japan particularly, and containment of work. And so this was had been achieved uh, by 1950. Um, you know, he obviously had the problems of the Soviet bomb and, and, and communist China, but uh, neither of those problems necessarily uh, made containment any less persuasive. I mean, I mean, we make it okay if you take Kennan seriously, and, and other people in America in Truman administration, they say this is what containment is. They get it basically a few years later. But why do you have this continuing American militarization? Yeah, that yeah, that's that's my question. So if they're if they're contained by roughly 1950, Stalin dies in 53. We've got them where we want them. You just get the sense, like, is it now safe for us to have a talk with them, to have a dialogue with them? But I guess part of the answer is nobody wants to be the first one to appear weak in front of the communists by actually talking about dialogue. Yeah, exactly. It. I mean, basically, the, the political pressures in American political culture after 1950 to be as, as tough and as anti-Soviet as possible were so strong. There were really, really strong disincentives for anyone to do that in American politics. And what you see, of course, is the only people who really can do it are like second-term presidents, like Eisenhower after 1957, where he tried, actually, in many ways to achieve this, and, and that's why he gave this farewell speech. And um, uh, this, it was just so difficult. The incentives of rejecting this kind of approach was just so strong. That, um, that they played a major role, we, we argue, in the perpetuation of the Cold War. So those domestic political uh, influences that kept the Cold War alive, are we seeing echoes of those today with the way that certain people in American politics talk about Putin or Iran or North Korea? Yeah. I mean... As I mentioned in the beginning of our talk, I mean, this is, this is uh, in many ways even worse than it was in the Cold War because um, there is almost no sort of scope, uh, there's no boundaries, there's no limits to what people can say. I mean, you, the, the Cold War, whatever else one says about it, um, you couldn't, there were, there were two sides and you had to identify the one side that was a threat and the other side that wasn't. Now it's like anyone can be a threat. And the, the stakes of, are so much lower than they were during the Cold War, and the possibilities of, of, of births are almost infinite. You know, Colin Powell famously said back in 1992, I think it was, you know, we're, we're running out of enemies. I'm down to North Korea and Cuba. Um, and the fact is, is that you have, the, you have the creation of new enemies um, because of uh, American you know, political incentives, which, um, you know, and I, in, in, in my, my opinion, the Democratic candidate for the election um, this year, Hillary Clinton, is, is no better, and in some ways maybe even worse than Trump. Mm. I, I, I just have to ask real quick. It seems like America, since World War II, is just so used to having an enemy. It's like we're not sure who we are or we can't gauge how well we're doing unless we pit ourselves against someone. And I remember a book... I bought, please forgive me, don't judge me, by Nixon uh, before he died. It was entitled Beyond Peace. It's like, what does America do now that we don't have that real life and death struggle with, with uh, someone like the Soviet Union? Because the Middle East, the Middle East can annoy us, they can do things, but they're not going to wipe us out potentially like the Soviet Union could. But America is just having, like, we don't know what to do next. We don't know how to relax or, or be calm or just get along with everybody. It's like we need to pit ourselves against someone just so we can have a sense of who we are. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that reflects the famous um, insight from the German political philosopher Carl Schmidt, who said, you know, everyone needs an enemy. Um, and the, the fact is, is that it, because, of, because of American situation, you know, preponderant power, you know, almost complete security, it just becomes the political incentives to find an enemy um, become really, really intense. Um, you know, you have people talking about ISIS being like, you know, the next, you know, Nazi Germany. I mean, if you look at the rhetoric after, after 9-11, it's just mind-boggling what people were saying. Um, it's not because these people are, these, these are not, not threats at all, but they're, they're, they're not 
existential threat, as you put it. And so mm-hmm. um, it, it, it behooves American political leaders uh, to try to hype these threats. One, one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of Obama is because he's really tried to fight that, I think, especially over the last few years. Not everywhere, not perfectly, but he's done a pretty good job of it, I think. Mm. Well, let's let's wrap it up uh, with some summary thoughts then, Professor Craig. Uh, you know, here we are sort of towards the end of 2016, what would you say the, the most important lessons of the Cold War are? <laughs> the most important lesson of the Cold War is that um, once you get nuclear weapons, uh, you have to figure out a way to avoid um, war. And whatever else one says about the U.S. and the Soviet Union, they manage that. Um, uh, and uh, this was due to the ability of political leaders in both countries to understand uh, that you can't mess about with nuclear weapons. Uh, you, you don't use them. Um, you, you don't, you know, you, you play the game, right? You, should, you look tough, but you don't mm-hmm. actually ever use them. And if I were to take one lesson from the Cold War, um, you know, sort of in many ways kind of an apolitical lesson, but a lesson nevertheless, it would, it would be that. Uh, another lesson, I think, and this is a theme that Fred and I emphasize in, in, in the book, is um, the importance of diplomacy. Um, the... The idea is that you, 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 don't, you don't negotiate with your friends, you negotiate with your adversaries. And that American political system has to uh, get around the idea that uh, negotiating with some, some, some force is in any way sort of endorsing them. Again, there's all, all this posturing in American politics that comes from the fact that there's the low stakes of failure. So that's another argument we take from the Cold War, uh, uh, I would say. Um, and the th- I guess the third would be, again, our, our point about, about the American political system, uh, that it, 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 it's structured to reward militarism and, and, and threat inflation. Um, and um, we, we hope that, that people who have read our book uh, come, come to see that that is indeed a problem. Uh, and like Obama in many ways, you know, make it their business to try to contend with it. Mm. Well, before we wrap up, Professor Craig, we like to do something with guests so it's not all serious. We like to do what we call the lightning round. You have 60 seconds to answer a bunch of uh, seemingly random questions. Uh, sure. Give, let's just learn a little bit more about you. You happy to play? Of course. All right. Then I, have to, then I have to get back on the train. Yeah, no, that's fine. We'll let you go. So... Professor Campbell Craig, you have 60 seconds to answer these questions as quickly as you can. Your time starts now. How many times have you been to the Doctor Who experience in Cardiff? Zero. <sighs> Are you the identical twin of actor Stephen Delane who played Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, or is he just your celebrity lookalike? He actually has tried to make himself look like me. <laughs> <laughs> Are you Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. Apple or Microsoft? I uh, don't care. I'm oh. a Luddite. <laughs> okay. What uh, What would your desert island film be? Hmm. Probably either This Is Spinal Tap or Pulp uh, Fiction. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Did not expect that. Uh, desert Island album? Desert Island album. Hmm. Mm. I'd probably go Stevie Wonder's Intervision. Oh, classic. 1971, I think. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Desert Island Book? That's that's probably um, Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. Oh, very classic. Uh, Favorite drink? Uh, The most expensive red wine you you can send to me. Do you, to, do you want to send me a, a Grange, a, a Grange Hermitage, please? Go ahead. Well, okay, I'll, I'll get right on that. Um, <laughs> that's something that only Australians would know what that is, or maybe red wine drinkers around the world know what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, are you a cigar smoker? No. Ah, uh, one of these days we're going to find someone Ray, who answers days. that question correctly. <laughs> one of these days. Um, do you believe in free will? Uh, no. Uh, which interpretation of... But, whoa, hey, let me stop there. Really? Wow, you're the first person, I think, that agrees with me on that. That's, oh, that's good. We should drill down on that. Why not? 
Mm, I mean, I think that free will exists, but but 100% free will certainly does not. Okay. I'm I'm, I'm a a social scientist. Okay. Which interpretation of wave-particle duality do you prefer, Heisenberg or the many worlds theory? Heisenberg. Yeah, okay. Uh, Did Jesus really exist? Sorry? Did Jesus really exist? Of course. Okay. UFOs? Uh, yes or no? What's the question? Do they exist? Yes. By definition, they exist because there are flying objects which are unidentified. <laughs> okay, you're taking the technical out there. Okay. What about, what, yeah. what about ghosts? No, I'm not, I'm not. I don't think ghosts. Okay. And if you had a TARDIS and you could go anywhere in time and space, where yeah. would you go? I would go to the Woodstock Festival 1959. Nice. <laughs> You wouldn't, you wouldn't go back and try and stop the Cold War, anything like that? No, Cuban no, Missile no. Crisis, none no, of that? No. I, I, I want to see Jimi Hendrix play. I can yeah, feel that. Yeah. Uh, Professor Craig, uh, thank you again for taking the time. We loved your book. It was uh, one of the most interesting, insightful, and I think balanced books on the Cold War that I've certainly read. And uh, looking forward to reading your other one with Sergey. And you've got a new one, I think, in the works. Lots of, lots of stuff coming out. So, yeah. Um, well, Send me an email and I'll be happy to forward the information. We'll keep an eye on you on Amazon.com as well. Thanks again for your time. We'll let you get back on your train. Okay, cheers. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Cheers. What well, a lovely fellow. Yeah, that went that went smooth. Yeah. Well, once you stick your hand up my backside and treat me like a puppet, I'm, I'm impressive. <laughs> I'm when, impressive. Except when you said George Keenan instead of George Keenan. Keenan, I'm sorry. I was, was thinking of the black actor from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> to me, they're the same. Which Keenan Thompson, George Keenan Thompson? Oh, that, who, I have no the, idea. The, yeah, the, the Cold War the guy that makes me laugh. The Cold War comedian. I like Keenan Thompson. <laughs> yeah, the Cold War gives me a giggle. Keenan Thompson can make any sketch funny, even the worst, yes. unfunniest sketch on SNL. You put Keenan yes. in it, and they have several of them. Yeah, it was, and he could yeah. just look like he's about to break, about to laugh, and it becomes even funnier. Yeah. Well, uh, I thought that was uh, very interesting interview shame about his yeah. mobile phone reception but i i yeah. think it was uh, we could make out most of what he said but um, just to let everybody know his book was truly impressive we're not just saying that because he was on the show but the way their arguments they made and the way they were presented it truly was a pleasure to read you should definitely check it out yeah so that's uh the cold war politics of insecurity grab that america's off. america's cold war right Yes, yeah, sorry, that one. Yeah, uh, check it out on our uh, bookstore up on the Cold War mm-hmm. doc, uh, com site. And we're going to have his co-author of that, Fred, as I said, on the show uh, sometime in the next, I don't know, three or four weeks, something like that. And we'll be able to compare his um, lightning round answers to mm. Professor Craig's. Mm. So interesting. Mm. Yeah. Woodstock. That's, uh, Woodstock. That's classic. Purple Haze. Anyway. Kind of felt like he, he had very considered answers for those questions that uh, I, I think yeah. somebody leaked him a copy of my notes. I'm not really sure. <laughs> Certainly wasn't me. Um, any any nope. any final thoughts on that, Ray? Did you, any anything that you learnt or, or wanted to just comment on? Well, yeah, just one of the things that really um, struck me from the book was when, um, I can't remember, this is the late 40s, something like that, where Britain pretty much brings up the United States and says, look, we can't afford to support Turkey and Greece anymore. We're going to pull out, you know, because they've been pulling out of their empire, whatever. We're going to pull out economically. We just can't keep them up. And if we don't, then it's going to, it's probably going to collapse in the, in the communists or the people are going to want communism, whatever. We're just giving you a heads up. And that's what triggers, you know, the, 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 uh, the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan and just little things like that. Just, you know, there's these, relatively small events, but they trigger such large reactions. And it's things like that where America has to go, okay, we've got to put something together to keep, you know, the USSR out of Europe. And, and just that, you know, they told us, and then we come up with that as a reaction. That was just pretty staggering to me in the book. Yeah. I, I, I think um, the, the, the key takeaways I took from the book was this uh, idea that, um, the American response to the Soviets during the period of the Cold War was primarily driven by the domestic political realities of the yes. U.S. Then. I wish we could have yeah, spent more time on it. It's pathetic. I'm going to say this as an American. It's pathetic that everybody's they're sitting there facing the Soviet Union. They're not sure what the Soviet Union is capable of. They're worried about the total devastation of the planet. And all the American politicians can think about 
is the next coming election about their own backsides, about staying in power and privilege and wealth and stuff like that. It was disgusting. But again, as you pointed out a billion times in all of these podcasts, that seems to be the way of humanity. But again, it's they're not good or bad. It's looking at right, what, right. what their motivations are. And you know, part of it is, at the end of the day, we, we all want to keep our job. We all want to keep our paycheck. We all want to keep our benefits. And when we're placed in a situation where in order to do that, we need to talk tough, act tough. We need to keep pushing the military-industrial complex along. Uh, because if we don't, then we'll be replaced with someone who will. Who will, exactly. It's it's And I just... Yeah, it's very difficult to imagine what these people like, and I'm sure there were American politicians who were the uh, like Henry Wallace. He mentioned they were the Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders of their time that exactly. stood up and said, "No, listen, this is ridiculous. This is getting out of hand." And Kennan, as he said, and we'll we'll do. I, I think you mean Keenan. Yeah, we'll do a <laughs> lot. We'll do a lot on Kennan in later episodes. But Kennan yeah. himself, the the author of the containment policy. Uh, spent the rest of his life regretting it and speaking out against yeah. the escalation of the military Mexican standoff between the U.S. Right. and the Soviet Union. Um, well, he had a more balanced approach. It was supposed to be a little of this, a little of that, and not just all hammer, hammer, hammer. So between him and what Truman were doing early on was pretty effective, but things are going to change very quickly. And, and like he said in the show, uh, once once the rich start benefiting from it, they're not going to allow things to go back to the way they were. And so the industrial military complex is going to make a pile of cash. Mm. I'd love to have had Kenan on, but he passed away, I think, in 2003. Uh, wow. He was a, a big critic of the George W. Bush administration and their I'm sure he was. reaction to 9-11. Uh, so that's, I think, a really interesting takeaway from the book is their focus on that. And also just the idea that he mentioned a couple of times that when the U.S. crafted the Marshall Plan and the Baruch Plan, uh, they were deliberately crafted in the knowledge that mm-hmm. the Soviet Union would not join. They would have to say no. Exactly. With, basically, you're saying give up your entire identity and culture and become like us. I mean, that's not fair. You can't do that to another group of people. Well, yeah, flip it around and imagine if the Soviet Union had had the upper hand in those negotiations right. and said to the United States, you have to give up capitalism and become a you communist become a, country if you want to wear smocks be part of our world. Yeah. What? No. Smocks? What? I don't, what what a, a tunic? What does Stalin wear that, that nondescript? A uniform? Freaking sh- well, it's like there's a specific term I was trying to think of. Anyway, and, and just going back to Kenan for a second, Kenan for a second, Fuck. dialogue is not weakness. Just because you're talking to your enemy doesn't make you a a, a traitor. You know, you're, it's not it's not evil or whatever. Just to try to talk to the other person and get an idea of what's going on in their head. And we saw I this. Hate that about America. Well, we saw this in the last twelve months with the Obama administration negotiating a deal with Iran. And yeah, again, he got the, the Republicans in particular uh, positioned that as, as weakness. And they're, they're laughing yeah. at him because he's weak, because he's negotiating yeah, and having dialogue. That's not what Reagan would do. Yeah. So good book. Check it out. Um, yeah. And uh, we'll be back uh, with some more episodes uh, in the next few weeks. Take it easy. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) (laughs) An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.
you're ruining it, you know. You're ruining the atmosphere. No. No. No, you're really not. Keenan. <clears throat> Starline. <coughs> so when Starline and Roosevelty and Truman Yes. 